everyone, and welcome to The Goods, a film podcast where it's nobody's birthday but mine. This is Brian here, and Dan is with me as always. Welcome, Dan. Happy birthday, Brian. Hey, thank you. Turning 33 this time. I've completed my 33rd revolution of the sun. You're encroaching on a third of a hundred. That's right. Repeating, of course. That I guess that would happen round about yeah. April. Was that intentionally a Leroy Jenkins reference? R- repeating, of course. Obviously, yes. Yes, yes. And this week, listeners, we are going to be continuing coverage of low-budget productions that we established last week when we talked after last season and Final Flesh, because the properties I have brought for us to discuss this time around are Feeders, a shot-on-video film from 1996, and the web series Henry's Kitchen, which I just learned in the lead-up to this episode, continues to this day, although the first batch of episodes came out in 2011 into 2012, and after, like, seven episodes came to a pseudo-finale, though it has subsequently returned. So did you indulge me, Dan, and watch all those things? I did, yeah. I watched Feeders. I actually watched that after I watched the Henry's Kitchen episodes, and I watched, per your recommendation, the first quote-unquote season, I guess, of Henry's Kitchen on YouTube. Well, did you have a preference of what order you wanted to talk about them? No, follow your heart. Okay. You're the the birthday boy. That's right, I am. So, long-time listeners will know that, largely at my request, we always do dedicated birthday episodes, and it breaks down pretty evenly because my birthday's in January and Dan's is in June, so it's not too top-heavy. It's pretty much half and half of the year. And the very first time we did one of these, back in January of 2021, I suppose, was our 20th episode, and we covered the film Rockfire Explosion, a documentary about the animatronic anthropomorphic band that performed at Showbiz Pizza and the man-child fanatics who keep their memory alive. A, a classic of... of... Sad birthdays. Indeed. A milestone for us. And so in that same vein, I wanted to return to the sad birthday well (laughs) for a film that I connected with the following year. So I mentioned in the Rock of Fire episode that back in 2013, my uh, my brother took a deep dive into the Rock of Fire fandom, and he just did all this research and dug up supplemental media. And that birthday, uh, both me and my brother Andrew have January birthdays a week apart, and we had a joint party at Dave and & Buster's. And then after that party, I thought, you know what would be a good film to watch? Rock of Fire Explosion, which we had discovered the previous year. And... We just both vibed with it. I think when you have a January birthday, that's kind of a bleak season. It tends to be kind of gray and dreary outside and cold. And it's just the perfect time, especially if you're partying at Dave and Buster's, to just really absorb the Rock of Fire film. Well, listeners, 
the next chapter to the story came in 2014 when uh, that birthday, Monday, January 20th, 2014, I remember that I had a gathering, I think just me and my family, at Austin Grill for Trivia Night. In fact, it might have just been me and my brother. But this was the first time we heard about the polar vortex on the news. Do you remember this, Dan? Vaguely, yeah. This is like a winter phenomenon of where it gets super duper cold for a few days. Right. So in subsequent years, they've brought the term back. Sometimes they call it like a bomb cyclone or something. I like that. Yeah. But, you know, you'd think we've had thousands of years of weather. They couldn't possibly come up with weather buzzwords <laughs> or some like euphemism treadmill of weather conditions. But here we are at this January 20th, 2014. Suddenly the news is talking polar vortex and they declared that the next day, the 21st, was going to drop to like minus four degrees or something all of a sudden. And so school was going to be closed the next day. So I worked leading clubs in the schools, and so I found that I would not have to go to work the next day. So I'm sitting here at Pub Trivia, and I thought, you know what? We can just keep this party rolling. And earlier that day, I had gone to the thrift store, and on the thrift store shelf, I found a DVD with no studio label on it. Nothing on the spine to indicate that it came from, say, <laughs> Warner Brothers or Universal or anything under the Disney umbrella. That's how you know. It just said feeders. <laughs> and I pulled it off the shelf and I looked at the back and I saw that it had little screenshots from the film and I could tell that it was shot on video. Now, there is a internet reviewer called the Cinema Snob who I followed for a while back in the day, back in the nostalgia critic days of the early 2010s. And he would really dig to the bottom of the barrel. Like, I'm sure if I had kept up with Cinema Snob, I would know about things like after last season. But he had a series of reviews on what he called shot on shittio films. <laughs> the, the peak of wit, the height of wit. Yes, indeed. True internet reviewer comedy but that was the first time i learned that there were independent filmmakers back in the 80s and 90s making whole features on videotape like vhs actually videotape it's pretty impressive like they got their home camcorder and some way to edit and they're putting out things that are i guess you could say movies <laughs> if you're feeling generous yeah so we got home from Austin Grill Trivia and popped this in the DVD player. And we had an experience, Dan, that we're now revisiting. Yeah. I'll say that DVD also has the Polonia Brothers Bigfoot film called Among Us on there. Okay. Which okay. left less of an impression, but it was nice that it was a double feature. Did you watch them both in one night? I think I watched that maybe during the polar vortex break the next day. Gotcha. And so, Dan, that's a little context for this first thing we're going to talk about, feeders. 1996, 68 minutes long, according to Tubi's streaming. That's where I watched it. Tubi, another way that you know that you're dealing with high-quality cinema is if you're, you're streaming it on Tubi. 
there is such a mix of quality on Tubi. I mean, they've got The Shining right now. Really? <laughs> it's just a complete grab bag. I love it. I feel like it's going to be one of those things that 10 years from now, people are going to say, man, remember the golden age of Tubi when there was like 100 million random ass videos you could stream for free? All you had to do was sit through the occasional ad unless you had an ad blocker. Yeah, it's like the things that fall through the cracks of the other streamers. And I remember actually our very first episode, Suspiria, the original, I watched on Tubi. Oh, nice. It's possible that I did too, honestly. I can't remember. Yeah, you know what? I might have watched it on Tubi. So every once in a while, it comes in clutch. The Dark Horse streamer. I read that, this is a minor tangent, that Tubi was actually founded by people whose expertise was not in movies or not even in video technology, but in ad technology. So their their breakthrough, their special sauce was like a, a nifty ad platform that got relevant ads and got like a efficient click-through rates on the ads and things like that. So that that's how Tubi was able to stay afloat when so many of these other ones have gone to the dumpster. Tubi or not Tubi. <laughs> yeah, so this film feeders was made by independent filmmakers the Polonia brothers, John and Mark Polonia. And I guess they established a niche doing these shot-on-video films. And at least this is what I've read. This one, Feeders, was their breakthrough. And they actually got a deal with Blockbuster that in the wake of the popularity of independence day in 1996 blockbuster was looking for alien invasion films that they could distribute exclusively and so they got the distribution rights to this film that the polonia brothers made that's crazy and so then blockbusters all over the country i guess had this on their shelves in 1996 ready to go when I guess the Independence Day new release shelf depleted. You know, clicking through Tubi is probably the closest experience we have nowadays to just going to Blockbusters and seeing feeders. What the hell is feeders? Well, I guess I'll have to grab that and see what that is. It's like the same thing as Tubi. It's like, what is this movie here? I I saw one called F the Prom. It was, but there was star, star, star after F. I was like, who's ever heard of this movie? It's like a teen comedy or something. And I put that on something I might need to watch later. It's like, I don't know. How else would you discover these random ass movies nowadays? That's a great point. I did see quite a few intriguing thumbnails under you may also like. (laughs) I'll also shout out the Amazon Prime video. They seem to have quite a few deep cut things. Yeah. And allegedly, this film has a budget of $500, Dan. (laughs) Gotta say, they must have already owned the equipment and everything then. That's like the amount that it costs, like, paper mache and gasoline or something like that. Right. Yeah, those are things that in your film budget you would mark down as in-kind. That's what you write when you already have it or your uncle is going to give it to you or something. Okay. (laughs) Like, I'm not actually spending money on it, but I still needed it to make the movie. Right. But I would say they made better use out of their $500 than after last season did with their $5 million. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it's certainly on a ratio. 
It's like, what is $500? That's like 0.01% of $5 million. Yeah. Uh, I, I would say that, you know, you can tell it's, it's, I guess they call this kind of film a zero budget film. I mean, it's not technically zero, but it's close enough to zero. And you can kind of tell it, but, you know, it's not nothing. It's less of nothing than after last season was nothing. <laughs> less of nothing is a potential episode title. <laughs> yeah, so this film, Feeders 1, takes place over the course of a single day into the night. And you've got like a running ticker of what time it is that pops up in the lower third. And broadly, it tells the story of an alien invasion. As Dan said, it's got a mercifully short runtime, just over an hour. And at the opening of the film, what appear to be two meteors crash land in a wooded area. But we, the viewers, see that they are UFOs. And that these aliens come out of it that are like... Well, they're puppets. They're very clearly shoddy puppets and the memes that have emerged from this film would suggest that they don't really have mouths but i don't know i think i saw a mouth yeah there's a line for a mouth for sure and the human characters we're going to be following most of the time are two friends named derek and bennett and the way that you tell them apart is derek has like a big mullet and bennett has a bad mustache and the two of them are driving through the woods and they discuss that they're trying to get to the beach and we don't really know too much about that but they're, they're bound for the beach but they're taking a detour through this like national park forest first and they decide that they're going to camp the first line that either of them says is Derek is looking out at the wilderness and he says this is like a page out of history and Bennett says, yeah, a real boring page. <laughs> oh. So that kind of establishes the timbre of the dialogue in this film and, and the caliber. Right from the start, I was just wild about the character Bennett, the one that who gives the line. Yeah, a real boring page. He looks like Kip from Napoleon Dynamite. Oh, totally. That was my touch point, too. And he's got the funniest deliveries. It's like, it's, of course, a little, you know, stilted. This is nice. Not a professional actor, but it's it's like the equivalent of a Adult Swim TV show where they have like, like ironically quasi bad, but somehow really good delivery. That That's what it made me think of. It was, it, I was laughing my ass off. There's a line that he gives like a couple minutes in. And he's talking about wanting to go to the beach. And he's like, yeah, we're going to see babes in their skimpy suits. And it was like the funniest delivery. <laughs> yeah, he's got major Arnold from Troll 2 energy. <laughs> and this character, Bennett, is played by John Polonia. So one of the Polonia brothers who were behind the film. I also read, at least according to Letterboxd, that the co-star was actually a third credited director. So John McBride. Okay. And he, it seems, has done some other zero budget shot on video type movies. He has one called like Cannibal Campout, for example. 
So basically everybody we see was stirring the pot in some regard. They were all invested in this project. And I think Troll 2 is an interesting comparison for kind of this whole project. In the sense that, you know, you've got, like, amateur actors stumbling through the woods, obviously a very low budget, and yet the production value is still like a order of magnitude different between them. Like, you can tell Troll 2 is shot on film, and just, I mean, the cinematography is, like, totally different. Yeah. Here, it's somebody walking around with a VHS camcorder. Yeah, at the start of this movie, I was thinking that they had never made a movie before. It's like, this, they don't really do anything interesting in the first 10 or 15 minutes. It's like all level medium shots of people talking and like not the best editing. Although I gradually came to realize that there was no way in hell this was the first movie they had made because they do have some cinematic sense and they do some more interesting things as, as it goes along. Definitely. And we're going to give credit where credit is due. Like, I think this film would work well as a storyboard. It's clear that they, like, thought through what the individual compositions were going to be, in some sequences at least. And then, you know, some were realized to a more or lesser degree, but, like, they they planned it out. Right. And I think the movie's at its most charming when it's leaning into the cheap silliness. When it's just people talking, it's it's... <laughs> It's kind of rough, but when they're like, oh, the goofy aliens popping out and waggling around, I was smiling as I was, I was going. There's like a, a giddy silliness to it to some extent. Mm -hmm. And you're you're right. It also benefits having come after after last season, <laughs> which has absolutely no cinematic sensibility. Yeah. I mean, we could even call this after last episode or something. <laughs> but so Bennett and Derek have determined that they're going to stop for the night in the camp they're going to pitch camp in these woods that they're traveling through. Uh, but before they do that, they run into some girls at a gas station and Bennett chats them up and is able to secure a double date that they're going to come and meet them in the woods at their campsite. So Bennett has game. I guess that's the kind of thing that happens when you're the director. Yeah. But meanwhile, the aliens have emerged from their craft and they're sneaking around the woods, slowly racking up a body count of randos. There's like a fisherman that they attack and a park ranger dude. Whenever we get an alien POV shot, it does inverted light, inverted color. So like black becomes white and white becomes black. And I think one of my dad's camcorders had this effect back in the day. You would recognize it if you saw it, probably. But I was wondering how they edited it on video. Like, how do you do that? Do you just when they had in super impositions and stuff, they must have had like a thing where you could plug in multiple videotapes or something and like paste it and record it on a new one. Yeah, a bit of a tangent. But there's a really interesting video by James Rolfe, who is one of those early Internet reviewers. And he talked about how when he was a kid, he had a system that it was like two VCRs plugged into each other and he could edit from multiple video feeds. And it was pretty neat, like something I would have never even thought you'd be able to do. But I imagine it's something similar here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm sure they had something like that at like TJ for the morning announcements and stuff. 
Probably. I mean, by our time, it was probably already somewhat digital, but I'll, I'll bet like plenty of high schools in their AV room had some way that you could do this edit between videotapes. And also in the second act, I don't know how they did it to get it on video, but there is some like CGI in this and, you know, it's on par with after last season's CGI, but the little bits of it, like when they have the UFOs flying around. Right, right. There's a couple shots of the UFOs landing over Earth. And I'm comfortable calling it even better than after last season. <laughs> like, you can follow what you're seeing. Right, that's true. Yeah. It's like they put a little more thought into it than let's play with the tutorial of Maya or some rendering software for 15 minutes. Right. That said, though, there's a couple really strange special effects where it's like they drew on the film or something. Like, one of the people, I think, gets attacked by an alien, and then he, like, runs into the road in front of Derek and Bennett's car, and they hit him. And then they take him to a doctor who is somewhere. The sense of space is a little loose in this film. Like, I don't really know where things are <laughs> as far as locations in relation with one another. But they get this guy to the doctor... And the doctor, like, does an autopsy on him because he dies from his injuries. And then, I don't know if he's got an alien in his body somehow, but the aliens come and attack the doctor. And at several points in this scene, the, like, blood spatter is drawn on, like, in post. And I don't know why they couldn't just put some blood down. <laughs> Fake blood ketchup out there, yeah. Yeah. Maybe they didn't have permission in this doctor's office to put <laughs> blood around. But it's like the doctor looks over and suddenly there's blood on the sheet that's covering the patient. And it's, yeah, it's like a MS paint drawing. And then the aliens attack the doctor, leaving him a cartoonishly severed head and nothing else. And his neck stump has this red line drawn across it. Yeah, that one, it seemed like they did... A little bit of green screen type stuff. It's like the, with the way that the head was there and not the rest of him. Yeah, they must have. It was kind of interesting, but still, it's like, just put a little bit of liquid on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> Make this look a little bit better. I do think they must have used the computer for some of this editing because there's also a some noise added in. Like this absolutely horrible sound for the aliens that you hear about 85 times, and I just hated it so much. And there's also this occasional score that they pipe in which i didn't like but then it like changed the score from like this kind of generic chipper music to this moodier music for the the third act when things get a little more tense but whatever it is it's different from the like the audio of people talking it's a lot cleaner so it's like i don't i think it was added in post and you know, I don't think they're like recording themselves playing instruments on here or something. I, I imagine it was done by the computer, but who knows? Mm -hmm. who knows? Yeah, I mean, they definitely spent some time in post. It's not yeah. all like on camera editing. There were times that I genuinely like respected the craft of their editing. So sometimes definitely not. I mean, there is a scene where the girls are talking to each other on the phone and like the one who met Bennett at the gas station is like, hey, come out. And we, I hooked us up with these two guys and we're going to go meet them at the campground. And then it cuts, you know, to the other side of the phone conversation. And just the way that was edited back and forth was very, 
amateurish. Like you hear the full line from the person and then like a little bit of pause before you cut to the other side of the phone and hear that person say their full line. What this needs is some J cuts and L cuts, people. You need to have the audio from one person carry over into the next shot mm. and, you know, put a put a phone filter on it. That's got to be hard, though. That's how you fix this. You make it a little concise. That's if you're just recording on tape, though, that's got to be harder to do. Maybe so. You're probably right. But the scene where the aliens attack the fishermen, I thought was edited quite well. Because he's got this hat, this this like trucker hat on that says, I haven't had a bite all day. And the aliens creep up on him and attack him and his hat falls off. And then there's this dramatic close up on the hat as it like tumbles into frame. And ironically, you see, it says, I haven't had a bite as they're eating him. And it's like, well, that was very well constructed. Yeah, that one, I think they, you're right, storyboarded it. But the aliens keep attacking unsuspecting passersby. They get at least one of the girls because now they're wandering around the woods looking for Derek and Bennett. One of the girls fights off several of the aliens. I couldn't tell whether or not she survived and just got away. Or did they kill both the girls? No idea. Anyone who wasn't the main two characters is all blurred together for me. Okay, fair enough. Me too. Uh, I guess the forest ranger was the dad of one of the girls. She mentions that in the phone conversation, but it doesn't matter too much. Yeah, I noticed that too. I was like, whoa, hold on. What's going on here? What's the connection? It was like some world building. <laughs> An attempt was made. But eventually, like two thirds of the way through, Bennett and Derek realize that these aliens are out here eating people. And... So the, the third act of the film is them seeking refuge. They run off through the woods and after a while they find this house that is seemingly like out in the middle of nowhere. It reminded me a little of like the Blair Witch Project, like the climax of that. Mm, yeah, I can see that. Or like Night of the Living Dead or something. Definitely Night of the Living Dead in there. I was also thinking of Halloween a little bit. Where they're like looking around the corners to like, oh, where's the guy in the house? Except in this case, it's a paper mache doll puppet type thing. Right. So, yeah, like 15 minutes, maybe, maybe just 10 minutes. They're wandering around this house, like looking around corners, as you say. And I don't even know if the aliens are in the house yet. I think they're outside the house, but it did have a little bit of that Night of the Living Dead feel. I think there is like a corpse in the house that was very much like Night of the Living Dead. Right. But they kind of barricade the place, although eventually Bennett steps outside and he gets voiped up by a spaceship. This is the mustache dude, the the entertaining one. Mm -hmm. And they like probe him or something, scan him. And the result is that they beam him back. But now there's two of him. Yeah. And just to pause on the abduction itself, there was, it was like a little trippy. It was like they were messing with filters on their camcorder. It was like weird black and white, high saturation type stuff. It's like if you've ever messed around with movie editors, for sure. But like even sometimes old camcorders would have these things, too. It's like kind of trippy and visually weird. So now Derek, he of the mullet, has to decide which clone is the real one. Who's the real Bennett and who does he need to kill? You had a clip that you sent me, Dan. That captured this trope. 
Yeah, it's from The Adventure Zone, which is a podcast by the McElroy brothers, who are minor internet comedian celebrities. They do the My Brother, My Brother and Me podcast, but they also have a, a podcast called The Adventure Zone. And I listened to the first season of that, and it was quite good. But early on in that, there's a beat where a guy does this gimmick and you think it's going to be exactly, you know, the trope where it's two people and you have to figure out who they are. And so the first one says, oh, my gosh, I see what Tricky's trying to pull. Guys, I'm the real me. And then it cuts back to the second guy. And the second guy is talks in the outrageous fake German accent that the the villain had initially and. It's a very funny moment and the like the people recording the podcast are also laughing as it's going on. And there's this good YouTube animation of it that I sent Brian. Yeah, that was pretty funny. And yeah, we've got these two duplicates, these identical Bennett's, and it blew my mind suddenly that the production value had jumped so much. <laughs> like every other effect, you know, you can kind of understand how that gets pulled off with a zero budget. But then I was wondering, how in the heck he's fighting himself? He's like literally rolling around on the ground, wrestling with himself. Like, yeah, because he looks like him. The double really does look like him. Right. And I, I couldn't figure it out. It, I was like, wow, why did they save this for like the last five minutes of the movie? It's so convincing. Spoilers, guys. After the fact, I learned that the Polonia brothers are identical twins. <laughs> So this is a trick that they can pull out whenever they want. Pull up Mary-Kate Nashley. Yeah. Evil Bennett, by the way. Not credited. So even just watching the credits, you wouldn't feel Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's like the mystery at the end of The Prestige. Right. Spoilers. Yeah. But unlike in The Adventure Zone, Derek gets it wrong. He gets fooled and he slashes up the real Bennett with a sickle that happened to be at the house real handy there was a sickle yeah yeah now we actually get some some liquid blood so i think they must not have been able to use it in that doctor's office or something but now he's like you know spurting out of his mouth Mm -hmm. and derek turns and faces what he thought was the real bennett but turns out to be like an alien ambassador and he announces the invasion has begun And so then Derek runs off out through the door of the house and he's like suddenly in a suburb. He's he's running down like a cul-de-sac. That was the middle of the woods. <laughs> yeah, very jarring. But like the sun is coming up and he's running around and we cut out to a wide shot of the earth and like a bunch more alien ships coming down. And then... Derek running is intercut with a bunch of houses collapsing. Just like demolition footage, stock footage. So I guess we're to believe that the alien invasion is proceeding apace. Yeah, that's a good ending. It's like, you think they're going to try to defeat the alien and then, oh, it kind of has, but oh wait, no, it's actually the secret twin alien and here's the whole invasion and the world's going to end. It's like, okay. Right. Big, big and bleak and yeah, it works. But did you know, Dan, they've actually followed up Feeders with a Feeders 2 and a Feeders 3. I heard you reference that when we were chatting, and then I it popped up in Tubi, too. It said, hey, you know what? You just watched a movie called Feeders. You could potentially be interested in this movie called Feeders 2. And if that doesn't scratch the itch, then maybe you should think about this other one we have here called Feeders 3. 
And don't get confused, listeners. There's also a film called Feeders that's a documentary about men who are sexually attracted to very, very obese women and enable them by feeding them. Um. <laughs> that's not part of the same series. It would have been a real, a real surprising uh, crossed wires if I had accidentally watched that instead of the, the alien invasion feeders. It's like the whiplash when you go from Iron Man to the Iron Lady. <laughs> There's a movie that came out in 2022. I was going to say this year, but I guess at this point it's last year. Although it's the movies that we're watching now, at least that I'm watching, are leftovers from 2022. The prestige movies that either are just getting to streaming or whatever it is. So I still think of it as the movie year 2022. Anyways, there's a, a movie from 2022 called Bones and All, which was by Luca Guadagnino, or however you say it. We talked about him in our Suspiria remake coverage. That was our 100th episode. And that was real fun when we talked about it. But this uh, movie that he made after Suspiria is, again, it's called Bones and All. And it's about these teens who are cannibals and they call themselves feeders. So I was constantly thinking of that. But I was also wondering, do they even say feeders at all in the movie? I don't think they do. You know what? It's like a Troll 2 situation. Yeah, yeah. So Because I was thinking about the feeders from Bones and All. And I was like, oh, maybe it's like some cross-universe thing. Like, actually, there's aliens. But then they're just never called feeders. They're just generic aliens in, in feeders 1996. So, all right. <laughs> Man, the pitch. So they're teenagers and they're cannibals. I would greenlight it with that much. Yeah. It's in, like an epic road trip teen romance that just so happens to be about two cannibals. So I'm yeah. ready. I'll watch. But I did go ahead and watch Feeders 2, at least. The subtitle is Slay Bells, S-L-A-Y. <laughs> and it's a Christmas Feeders. This is actually from 1998, so they followed it up pretty quick. Okay. It picks up where Feeders 1 leaves off. Although they've kind of retconned the invasion that I guess the invasion is still going on like under the surface. Maybe they're doing more cloning and stuff that they're keeping it a secret. Uh, so not quite as apocalyptic as what we saw. But Derek is in an asylum. And he's got like this costume wig dangling down. Like, I guess he's been there a while. And he's like giving his story to an interviewer about how the aliens are out there. And the, the main thrust of the action follows this suburban family, which is maybe Bennett's brother and his wife and kids, because it's, it's one of the Polonias, but obviously we saw Bennett died, so it must be whoever this other guy is. <laughs> but they are going to fight off the aliens with the help of Santa Claus, who gets knocked out of the sky by some of the feeders coming down. And then he's got to, you know, beat back the usurpers, the invaders. I found this pretty entertaining. I thought it was actually pretty funny, uh, you know, all in relative terms, but it clicked for me a little more than Feeders 1. Okay. I was vibing with it a little bit more. I think Santa was the missing secret sauce. Yeah, I like that. Throwing in some sort of novelty in there. That's good. And so, The juxtaposition of Santa being evil 
it never doesn't work. It's always good. There should be more. I mean, I guess there's a lot of those. I shouldn't say there should be more because there's a whole lot of them. One just came out in 2022, I think. Right. And actually, I think that Violent Night is kind of in the vein of this one, Feeders 2, where Santa isn't like, you know, a, a demon as you get in Santa's sleigh or like a crazy psychotic killer like Silent Night, Deadly Night. Uh, this is just a guy who's there to do his job and something gets in his way and he's not against using violent tactics to overcome. So I would recommend it. If you've watched okay. Feeders 1, don't hesitate to toss on Feeders 2 as well. It's pretty short, just over an hour or two. My completionist compulsion might get me to do that. The one thing that I was thinking about with Feeders 2 sleigh bells is that I think the word sleigh has been like a recent teen slang thing, like Gen Z slang, although maybe it's just my sister and her friends because I know it from my sister. At first it was like, you're slaying it. Yeah, you go slay, Dan. And now she just says slay, like just a, something just like cool or radical slay. So for Christmas, I got her a shirt that said I slay, but it's S-L-E-I-G-H. So it kind of went like the opposite way that sleigh bells went. Oh, good choice. And then I started Feeders 3, which actually came out in 2022. So it's Whoa. It's perfect that we waited to do this episode until now. It's a legacy sequel. It's extremely meta. I think only one of the Polonias is still alive. I think one of them died. Oh, no. But, you know, now we have effects that if they wanted to, they could still probably make a copy of them. Anyhow, it was almost like New Nightmare or like a scream sequel or something where it was making all this commentary on the legacy of the feeders films. And it had a bunch of cameos from horror hosts. So faces that I recognized, you had Mr. Lobo and Marlena midnight. I did a a little bit more reading on the Polonia brothers or or like poking around their letterbox page. And they actually had been making videos for 10 years prior to feeders. Did you know they'd been making them for that long? I didn't. I am not super well versed. So anything you've learned, please yeah. let us know. So th- their other popular ones came out in the 80s. I suspect it's been a thing where they've been discovered in the 21st century. And so people have gone and revisited some of their older ones. I think their first ones were made like when they were teenagers or early 20s, whereas the one we saw, I think, were probably in the realm of like around 30 years old when they made them, just based on looking at the dudes. But the one that really interested me is called Hallucinations, and it came from 1986, I think. And here's the log line. Three brothers, one who is slow and another who is adopted, have disturbing and violent hallucinations while their mother is at work. And a lot of raving comments in the, if you click through the reviews of that, I think it's like kind of corny, you know, it's not like high art, but I think it's probably got a kernel of weirdness in there that that is appealing to the right audience. So I might look that one up. Hallucinations. I love your comment there. It's not high art. (laughs) Undoubtedly, it's art, though, some kind of art. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So this was, you know, one of those video store 
shelf finds for me, and I'm glad we got to discuss it here. Yeah. Definitely something in my birthday wheelhouse. You know, it was like last year we did the Spy Kids films, and I kind of settled on those because I thought I had burned through the only movies that I associated with birthday time. But like, as soon as we hit record on that one, I was like, wait a minute. What about feeders? <laughs> yeah. And what about Henry's Kitchen, which is the other featured piece of media I wanted to discuss, Dan? All right. So this was a web series, and the first batch of episodes were uploaded in 2011, so a while back now. And I probably found them either in 2012 or 2013. Okay. So round about the same time as I discovered Rockefeller Explosion. And the premise of this show is that it's hosted by a guy named Henry Phillips, maybe playing himself. I guess he's a stand-up comedian. But the character is just this intensely lonely dude who lives alone in a filthy apartment, and he has a cooking-themed web show. Each episode is like six or seven minutes long and shows him preparing a dish for his viewers. So, Dan, what were your first impressions? Yeah, so I googled it and I hit play. And at first, I was like, is this possibly what Brian recommended? Because it was just like a really awkward cooking show. Like a dude making a, a French toast, but I had to watch for all of 60 seconds before I realized that it was a gag and it was funny and it was like pretty quickly and pretty escalatingly very funny. And I laughed a lot watching these, Brian. There, there is something different. It's interesting because they're like right on the edge of actually trying to be a cooking instruction video. Not quite there, but it's like right on the edge of it. So it's... It's like neither fish nor fowl. It's not like exactly a comedy video straightforward. It's not exactly a cooking video, but it's a very unique flavor, I would say. Absolutely. Yeah. Playing with irony here. There are a few recurring attributes. I mean, it's very episodic. He makes some new piece of food in each episode. But some of the stylistic hallmarks of this series... There's strange editing, like constantly he's either cutting away before he gives an important piece of information or other times he lingers <laughs> too long on awkward silence. It's never not funny. <laughs> He'd be like, all right, and now the most important thing you need to know about cooking this dish is and then cut smash cut to him like pouring in some other ingredient. And it always does this transition where it's like, you know, it's like a scrapbook or something like the shot, like <laughs> slides away and another one slides on. But before he can give the key information, what it made me think of is the the classic Simpsons gag where Bart is a quarterback and who should walk into his backyard. But Joe Namath. And then he says, all right, if you're going to be a quarterback, the most important thing you need to know. And then Joe Namath's wife comes around the corner and says, I, it was Vaporlock. And then we see Bart like going through the things that Joe Namath said in his memory, and he just keeps hearing it's Vaporlock. 
And then the ep- that episode ends with Joe Namath giving a PSA on, on Vaporlock. But anyways, the way that it like cut off at the one important piece of information was definitely making me laugh. And another thing that Henry does is he will like launch into anecdotes, often related to history or something or something in his personal life. And the cadence with which he starts them off suggests that they're going to be related to whatever he is doing in the meal preparation but (laughs) it never does and it often turns like dark or violent he's like so this one time i was having a fight with my brother and he threw a rock at my head and it started to bleed and then it you know (laughs) shot slides off the screen and another one slides on like in the middle of a recipe it's like now here's a fun fact the ancient romans would store their urine in a jar and it would gradually turn rancid into vinegar and it's like why the hell are you talking about this in the middle of a cooking (laughs) show albert einstein had a daughter that he never acknowledged (laughs) i had a dream where i was climbing a ladder and my grandfather kept kicking me off the ladder (laughs) (laughs) and anybody who watches a cooking show knows that there's time when time needs to pass and you'll say you know wait two hours and then usually the cooking host will say here's something i prepared earlier and they'll pull out like a finished version of the dish but anytime henry needs to wait you always get like a little montage of him sitting around his apartment in silence (laughs) waiting just sitting on a chair with like his chin on his fist doing nothing staring at the filth around him (laughs) and like as the series goes the time gets comically longer to the point that like by episode six he's like wait two weeks he's just like standing around outside his house he also throws in random curse words that are like very jarring it's like then he'll just say yeah and and then fuck it just do that he's like whoa it's like this had this was like a uh, food TV type show, and then all of a sudden you got f bombs in there. <laughs> it usually made me laugh, though. Um, so another thing is he has a very limited supply and variety of recipe items. <laughs> like he doesn't have a lot of condiments and things, and so he's always making weird substitutions. Well, like he says, now you're gonna add tomato sauce but i don't have tomato sauce so i'm gonna use tomato paste which is the same thing (laughs) very much not yeah it it gets crazier i feel like at one point he like substitutes vanilla extract for soy sauce or something because it's it's like brown and in a bottle (laughs) and it's funny sometimes he'll he'll have good timing because he has like once an episode or maybe not even every episode he has this shot where he it's like top down on the dish and you see him pull the thing in he's like now here's where you add vanilla extract i don't have any and then he'll dramatically turn it and you'll see that it's soy sauce so it's got like a good comic timing on it another thing i liked is that he uses this basic it's like windows movie maker type i don't even know what you call it like a a overlay on the frame where it has like a little text box as if it's like introducing a scene or, or something. And the things that he includes, these little headers on the video are so funny. 
it'll like take a random phrase from what he had just said and throw it in there. So he's like talking about how in the first episode you got eggs and you got to beat the eggs. And he says, yeah, you got to beat it hard. And then the overlay pops up that just says, beat it hard. <laughs> and then when it's cooking, it's, he says, now you got to wait for delicious toast. And then it pops up and says, wait for delicious toast. <laughs> That always yeah. got me good, too. And, you know, sometimes it's off-center, and sometimes it, it like, doesn't include the information you would want. Yeah, it's all over the place. Then, almost always, we get to the end of the episode, and the food is just ruined. Something went wrong along the way. <laughs> <It's> horrible. <laughs> oh, and the th he, he just... So many of his dishes are ruined because his knife is not sharp. He's so bad at cutting... It's like he'll be cutting a tomato, but it'll like completely squish down when he cuts it. Just get a sharper knife, my man. They're like $14 at Bed Bath & Beyond. <laughs> you had a good quote that you sent me from one of them yesterday, Dan, and it said, a food processor is a pretty badass piece of equipment. <laughs> Used correctly. Used correctly is a pretty badass piece of equipment for your kitchen or something like that. <laughs> but yeah, usually we arrive at the end and Henry's food is just completely ruined. And he gives this awkward sign off. Generally, he's eating like peanuts or something, something <laughs> he didn't even need to cook. Yeah. There's one where he's uh, he has like an elderly friend or neighbor or something and he's using his kitchen and... We he constantly cuts to like looking in the cupboards and looking in the fridge and all he has is like insure or like the the nutrition shake stuff <laughs> and it's just everywhere throughout the house and then when his dish gets ruined we see him drinking one of those insure drinks which I thought was funny. Yeah. That's the saddest episode because that's the one time at least in this batch the food comes out looking like it should generally look. I mean it looks okay. But then he's like, and now before we eat, we're going to clean up the kitchen. And the old guy whose house it is walks by and chucks the finished dish in the garbage. Yeah. And Henry comes back around the kitchen and he's like, where, where is it? Where the hell is it? <laughs> and he looks in the trash and then the episode closes. Wait for delicious toast. <laughs> yeah. So Henry's life is not great. The ongoing thread is that he's very depressed and like the background music is this series of original songs where Henry Phillips is the singer, but it's under the pseudonym of Jose Suicidio. <laughs> That's a good, a good fake name for really depressing music. Jose Suicidio. Like, and like, yeah. all these tracks are up like as official Spotify uploads, so you can get clean, crisp Henry's Kitchen BGM. So I didn't know that it was original. I would have guessed it. It's not really recognizably him singing it, or at least I, I didn't recognize him. And I was like, damn, this music, first of all, it goes kind of hard. And second of all, it is adding this whole new emotional depth and like sense of despair to this dude failing to cook anytime chili for one, you know? 
Yeah, so the refrain of Help Me, which is the track most frequently used as like the theme song, is it goes, Help me make it through the night, because I am tired and alone. So it's really got like a Tom Waits vibe. That's that's who Jose Suicidio sounds like to me. Okay, yeah. And then, like, as the series goes, we hear more of this song. He's like, Cause I don't like myself anymore. I met a guy with cancer, and he felt sorry for me. Things like that. It's like super bleak emo. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned the Anytime Chili for One. This is the second episode of the show. It's the one that's got the most views. It's the, like, featured video on Henry Phillips' YouTube channel. I think it's the best one. Because he acknowledges that he's the only one who's going to eat this food. (laughs) And as such, he talks about how, like, generally a recipe is for, like, you know, four or six or eight people. And so you have to remember to convert and divide. So he's like, every ingredient in the recipe is measured out in the metric system, but you need to convert it to like ounces or whatever. And then you need to divide because this recipe calls for seven people, but I'm just one person. And the the runner of that just cracks me up. Him trying to remember to divide everything by seven. <laughs> yeah. It's just such an awkward number to divide by it. It's like, and he's horrible at doing it. It's very funny. <laughs> yeah, he he has something that he says. He's like, and one time I was doing this with salt and I put like 10 times too much salt in there and I took a bite and I thought, oh man, I fucked it all up. <laughs> yeah. There is something of a storyline at work in this first season, which is really just establishing Henry as this extremely lonely, extremely pitiful and depressed figure Mm -hmm. who fails at everything that he tries. (laughs) And so episode five is Henry's romantic sushi for a date. And this girl comes over. And it's just endlessly awkward. Like, (laughs) she walks in and he's got a camera in her face. He's like, yeah, I'm recording for the internet. (laughs) This was, like, unwatchable to me. It was like a horror movie to me. It's like, (laughs) I had to watch through the the gaps between my fingers. It's like, poor, innocent person. The fact that it's just, first of all, it's a date. And, like, anytime it's a date and it's in his apartment... There's like, it's very uncomfortable. And it's also just one other person. Like something about awkwardness when it's just one-on-one is worse than when it's like one person in a large group. And so, yeah. Oh, and there's like, he makes her stir the dish at one point. Oh, it goes so bad because it's, he makes sushi. And again, it wouldn't have been that bad if he had just had a sharp knife, but it still comes out in like a pile on the plate of like, nori and uh avocado and rice but he also because it's sushi has some raw fish in there and he he puts it on a plate for her and she's like is that raw fish i i don't think we should eat that 
And he's like, oh, no, I'm going to go cook it. So then he goes and he like scooping it off her plate onto a frying pan and then scooping it back on. At this point, it's like brown and, and old. And he brings it over to her. And then she reveals that it's 9 p.m. at that point. It's like, I don't even even if they had met for dinner at seven, that meant she was sitting there for two hours. And I was like, oh, my God. I relate a lot to Henry. <laughs> We're all saying like, oh, yeah. This was a big influence on Gauntley in the first place, especially the cooking episodes, because, again, I said I discovered this in, like, 2012, and Gauntley started 2013. Definitely, I tried to capture some of this flavor in, like, the editing of the cooking sequences. But, yeah, I don't know. I, <laughs> it, I feel some kinship here. Okay. Yeah. But as the as the arc continues, the, the next episode after the date is Henry's lip-smacking barbecue beer fish. <laughs> he's he's at like a block party, like a barbecue, you know, a group of neighbors or something out on a patio grilling. And he's preparing his dish on this grill, which is this like stuffed whole fish. Like he's cut the fish up the middle and he's stuffed it with like onions and stuffing and stuff. But... The weird thing is he's almost like a ghost, like a non-entity. Nobody is acknowledging him at this party. He's just kind of awkwardly standing around and like drifting through the background. And it's not until somebody notices this gross fish on the grill that they're like, what the hell is this? <laughs> and and then Henry comes forward. He's like, oh, that's my barbecue beer fish. And they just scoop it off the grill and fling it at him. Yes. They kick him out of the party. Yeah. Um, I liked that he always came up with like enthusiastic branding for his recipes. Killer oven baked French toast. Lip smacking barbecue beer fish. First of all, is barbecue fish? Is that really even a thing? I don't know. Especially <laughs> beer fish. But it was so disgusting. Oh, my God. <laughs> but of course, it's got the whole head on there and everything. Whole head and tail. Uh, but yeah, the branding. Henry has this special Henry's Kitchen apron that he's made. <laughs> it's like the icon of his show. It just gets sadder and sadder. But then we get to the like season one finale, which is called Henry's Birthday Pork Chop. And this is like a double length episode. And it's Henry's birthday. So I feel like I experienced this first batch all at one go and just that it ends with a birthday for Henry, I think is perfect. Mm -hmm. And we get a new Jose Suicidio song to accompany it called Nobody's Birthday But Mine. And I really like this one. It's like, don't give me any birthday cards. I don't need your sympathy. The Hallmark clothes, the Hallmark stores are all closed and shit. There'll be none of this for me. And like, as the song goes along, he talks about animatronic singing dogs and pulls in, you know, the Rockifier as an element of the whole thing. And it's like, wow, it's all coming together. I thought that, too, for sure. What it made me think of this song is it made me think of um, Sal's birthday from Rockafire Explosion, which Brian sang to open that episode, if I'm not mistaken. 100%. That's the one that creative engineering founder Aaron Fector plays on the synthesizer in his basement. 
We're having a birthday party. Today is a special one. And having a birthday party is a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Very nice. And yeah, it's got the same sort of tragic birthday vibe to it. Yeah, this is the B-side. The perfect companion piece to Sal's birthday. But then the episode ends like Henry goes into his kitchen to grab something, some condiment to put on this pork chop that he's made. And of course, he's also made like a cheesecake, but it's a single slice of cheesecake in a pan because it's just him who's going to be eating it. Don't even bother making the rest of the cheesecake. But he like goes around the corner to grab something. And when he comes back, his pork chop is mysteriously vanished. Yeah, so at this point, I was thinking it was kind of interesting. It was like this finale had brought in different elements from different episodes. It's like the gag where you have to awkwardly measure your own single serving thing was in there. And then the abrupt disappearance of like an actually competently made dish, like the pork chop and cheesecake almost sort of turned out. At least it looked edible to me, which is not something you can say about pretty much anything else he had made. But that it's a hell of a cliffhanger because... Unlike in the third episode, when you see the old guy brush it into the trash here, it's just magically vanishes and his plate is like clean. It's so bizarre. (laughs) Uh, And so we had to wait for the second half where Henry is finally like snapping. He's he's finally not going to take the world's crap anymore. And he he has like an angry outburst. He kind of storms out of his apartment. And he heads to a bar where he's sitting by himself at the bar. And somehow it comes out that this is the guy who wrote Help Me by Jose Suicidio. And it's like this metafictional, like, second half of Don Quixote thing where uh, people are aware. People in the community have heard Help Me, the theme song. And are like into it. And somehow they've experienced Henry's videos. Yeah, it's very bizarre. It's like they recognize him from the YouTube videos and and they're excited. And it's funny because everybody recognizes. Oh, this is Jose Suicidio. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like they come just short of like lifting him up on their shoulders. It's like suddenly he's a hometown hero. Suddenly the guy who's been impossibly lonely is embraced by everyone. And Dan, you gotta watch Taxi Driver. I haven't, yeah. Like, this is the Taxi Driver ending, essentially. It's like the guy who's on his way to, like, complete obliteration, like annihilation of the self, just total depression, total isolation, is now become like a folk hero at the very end of the story inexplicably unexpectedly he does something and everyone celebrates him for it so i thought it was interesting because whereas the rest of the episodes are very much like depressing reality and then this one is like flight of fancy certainly there's a case to be made that this is some sort of hallucination, some sort of mental coping mechanism where he imagined that his life actually matters at all because people hear this track that he wrote. 
Yeah, definitely. And people say the same thing about the ending of Taxi Driver. It's like, how are we supposed to take this? Is this real? But of course, none of it is real. It's all constructed. But we are left grappling with the idea that someone who is so clearly on a path towards nothingness gets this happy ending. And it just seems so plastered on and fake. And now, listeners, this is where I will say that about a year after this one, Henry started making more episodes and uploading them to his YouTube channel. And it doesn't seem like he's ever really stopped. So there have been like 70 episodes now instead of just seven. Whoa, he's made that many. Seems like about one a month. Okay. So it's a steady thing now. Interesting. I also saw that he had like a sub channel called Henry's Gym. Did you see that too? Haven't seen that. I have seen that he's got a series of videos called The Highwayman that I'm curious about. And he also has offered a cooking class through Masterclass. <laughs> so just like you can like buy Scorsese's series on directing or whatever, you can buy Henry Phillips's Masterclass on cooking, which I'm... Oh my God genuinely curious about but like okay martin scorsese known for making good movies henry's kitchen known for making like chili that burns into like a disc of tomato paste that he has to scoop into the trash and then have a bag of peanuts instead it's like why would you pay money for this education except as like a, a exercise and experiencing comedy i don't know that's right it's the postmodern age den Everything is several layers of irony deep. Yeah, apparently. And so that's what I played it up for consideration this evening. The first season of Henry's Kitchen and the first installment in the Feeders trilogy. Very exciting. Yes, thank you for joining me here on my third birthday on pod. Yeah, happy birthday. Do you have any other single things you wanted to call out? About these films. Yeah, one thing that that, uh, I was thinking a little bit about is an interesting thing is that Jose Suicidio song, it's good. It's also not like, you know, it's clearly like a dude fiddling around with Bandcamp too. So it's like a well-written song. It's nice. It's like evocative. It's also like not the type of song where you hear it. You're like, whoa, where's that song? I got to go download it, like necessarily. I mean, maybe some people like it that much. I don't know. But that was at least my reaction to it. And so what I was thinking of is this gag that we used to have when I was in college. It's me and my buddy Jack and my buddy Seabag. We had this recurring gag where straddling the middle ground between saying something enthusiastically and saying something sarcastically is to say something that's neither true nor ironically false. So it's like I'm trying to think of like what the example is. It's like, I don't know, if you go outside on a like a comfortable day, you could say, man, it's hot out here. It's like, OK, well, that's it's not that it's really hot. Like if you said that when it's hot, it would be true. If you said that when it's cold, it would be sarcastic. But when you go out and when it's 65 degrees, that's neither true nor ironically false. So we would always try to get each other by like finding these things to say that were that, that was the phrasing we always used: neither true nor ironically false. I don't there's probably another way to say that, but. Like the way that people were reacting so strongly and enthusiastically to Jose Suicidio 
as if he was like this heroic figure who had written this all time great song. You know, it's a good song. It's not like it's a horrible song. That would have been one way to make it funny is if like it's a really bad song and they like the bad song or like to have it be this masterpiece of a song. But it's neither of them. So for me, it was kind of like a neither true nor ironically false thing. (laughs) I'll have to think about that one for a while. Last thought. And this I thought is something that Henry would appreciate or at least would be right in Henry's wheelhouse is if. You go to the Henry's Kitchen Wikipedia page. The header at the top says, the topic of this article may not meet Wikipedia's notability guideline for biographies. So it's like putting out there that he's not an important or notable person. It's like very in the Henry's Kitchen wheelhouse. Yeah, I mean, he's only got like 70,000 subscribers, which is not nothing, but far from a PewDiePie or something. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But two things that I wanted to hit real quick so one of the episodes henry is up on like a stepladder i think he like a smoke detector goes off and he gets up there to take a battery out or something but then he falls off the stepladder and like the action sequence of him falling off the stepladder it cuts to like three different camera angles like it's very carefully constructed. You got like the close up of his feet falling off the ladder and stuff. <laughs> and that was the one time that he broke the illusion of like not knowing how to edit. Okay. He he broke the style. He he like showed his hand and in so doing like violated his style guide. Oh, interesting. Like I I think he should not have done that. It should have just stayed on one wide shot of him falling and busting ass off the ladder. Yes, even if you don't maximize the comedic potential of the pratfall, you, right. you sustain the the illusion that this is just a depressed idiot making c- cooking videos for no one. Exactly. And then one last thing, Dan. Of these menu items that we saw, which one would you want to try? Oh, man, which one would I want to eat? Um, I really like uh, California Rolls Sushi. So take out the raw fish and I would definitely eat that if he got a sharper knife because he got almost all the way there to making like actual California rolls. And then the cheesecake, I would eat, I would eat that cheesecake from the, the birthday finale. What about you, Brian? I, I'll tell you which one I wouldn't eat. I would not eat that godforsaken barbecue fish. That was a nightmare. <laughs> At one point he makes chocolate truffles, which I think is the one that he waits like two weeks for and they just turn out like glop. Yeah, it's like um, a chocolate blob. Yeah. I, if I could save the spicy shepherd's pie from the trash before it goes in, I'd probably want that. Mm. Yeah. That one looked pretty tasty, too. Have you seen the movie Eighth Grade, Brian? No. Um, so it's directed by the comedian Bo Burnham, and it stars Elsie Fisher. The premise is it follows this girl who's in eighth grade, and it's kind of like a naturalistic style sort of a comedy, sort of a drama, um, very, very awkward. And the framing story is this eighth grade girl is basically making self-help videos and like a lifestyle vlog is kind of part of it, except nobody is watching them. So it's kind of got this depressing angle to it. And it also has a sort of date that has sort of well, in this case, more directly predatory vibes, like really uncomfortable vibes. But just like the making the videos as if you are like a well-established advice 
vlogger of some sort made me think of the movie eighth grade a lot. Uh, it's a, it's a good movie, but it is like, Oh, similarly, like it's like a horror movie. Basically. It's so awkward and uncomfortable to watch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And here's where I will disclose listeners. I set up a cameo birthday call from Henry and he was supposed to join us here on the podcast. I bought my own birthday cameo for myself. It cost $90 and he didn't show up. So I'm just really getting the full Henry birthday experience here. <laughs> we'll see if that comes together. If not, I'll pester them and I'll get a refund. But <laughs> just know that that was intended to be part of the experience. And now here I am bidding you farewell as I munch on my peanuts or ensure diet shake. But now, Dan, we come to the crux. It's time to say, is it good? So is it good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, which is a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating toward a good, which is an eight out of eight. So, Brian, I guess we typically go the guest. In this case, that's me. That's right. Goes first and we'll do feeders and then Henry's Kitchen. Sounds good. So what did you think of feeders, Dan? Yeah, so one, the goods comparison that we did not make that I also thought of a couple times is Max Magician and the Legend of the Rings or whatever it's called. I don't even remember what it's called. But feeders came a few years before it. And I would say, like, if you want to talk about similar production quality values, Max Magician is basically in some ways better because you have five more years of technology in some ways worse because I think there's slightly less cinematic sense in that one, but it's kind of in the, the same boat for me where I gave that one a two out of eight, which is a not good. And I'm also going to give feeders a two out of eight, which is a not good. I did gradually climb up the two. So I'm actually at a high two, whereas at the start I was at a low two but I do think he gets more interesting as they try to do more horror and cinematic stuff. And it's kind of cool to see really amateur versions of special effects in there and like, you know, nifty little gimmicks in there and a couple of actually kind of neat shots. Um, I do think even at 68 minutes, it feels so slow with the wooden dialogue and stuff and very, very amateurish. And I would say it's like one tier above what you and I could make, Brian. Mm hmm. I think we could do this with our technology. Yeah, maybe with what we have today, we could do this. Yeah, but um, so I'm going to give this one a not good. That's a two out of eight. But what about you, Brian? Cool. I totally agree with your comparison to Max Magician in terms of it's about that level of quality. But I find myself stuck with the fact that I gave Max Magician a one. Maybe it deserved to edge into two territory because both are just far above the quality of what we witnessed in after last season. Mm -hmm. And they're more enjoyable than something like Robert. So for me, this is like the highest one. It's, it's right in company with Max Magician. Uh, Max Magician, you get more variety. It's kind of a bigger production. There's definitely a lot more people involved and you get like makeup artists and stuff. But there are certainly sequences in feeders where it's clear they thought it out. You know, they, they knew how to piece together a film, whereas with After Last Season, 
we really got the impression that they had like maybe never even seen a movie before <laughs> let alone made one yeah it's it's almost like something that came together through quantum tunneling or something like <laughs> you know you left a petri dish out long enough and the pieces that came together to make the movie spontaneously generated in that case not not so here with feeders there was some thought and some effort put together into this one i'm almost curious to check out more of what the polonia brothers have done and on that note i did a little bit i watched feeders 2 and i would actually give feeders 2 a comfortable 2 out of 8 wow I loved seeing the 90s family getting ready for Christmas. You know, everybody's got their 90s pajamas on, their Christmas PJs. Mm -hmm. And you get the lots of that interior of the 90s house. I praised that also when we watched um, Ghost Watch. Just that much. Like an authentic look inside a 90s house is enough to keep me interested for a while. <laughs> so, yeah, just a smidge bumped up for feeders, too. I would encourage listeners to check out that one as well it's on tubi you don't need to go anywhere else once you're there and now dan henry's kitchen in as much as we've witnessed it so far what was your impression yeah season one so that's six episodes and a birthday special um so i really did not know what to give this because i did laugh extremely hard as i was watching it uh, multiple times, especially once I kind of understood the wavelength that was there. It is a little repetitive and I kind of wanted just like one degree more of like a running story of some sort or like something to keep me watching them in sequence other than just to like laugh for five minutes. You know, um, I do like the way that it kind of ends with this sort of narrative conclusion. That's kind of like a level above anything else we had seen there. Um, it is very funny though. Uh, it's kind of got, I had already mentioned the Adult Swim vibe of like awkwardly funny, but still like almost quasi ironically funny. For me, this is there too. That's, um, I, I had a good time. I'm going to give it a high end six out of eight. That's very good. I thought a little bit about a seven just because I really did get, get a lot of amusement out of it. Um, I'm going to stick with a six here. That's a very good. What about you, Brian? I'm right there with you, Dan. If this was like three episodes, I might give it a seven because yeah. it's really on my wavelength. Just the combination of like pseudo unintentionally funny. Like, you know, it's meant to be a humor piece, but it's really like right on the edge of you could almost see somebody making this genuinely and not realizing how off-putting and ill-produced it is. Mm -hmm. but I mean, I, I laugh, I laugh a lot. There's some gems in here, but you're right that as it goes along, it becomes very formulaic and it weighs on it a bit for me, especially like I've watched like episodes eight and nine. And I wonder how it continues to go on for 70 episodes. I'm sure it's stretched thin, but I'm curious. I'm curious enough yeah. to still watch some more. Uh, so for me, it's a six out of eight. Very good. That's where I'm at. Cool. Highly recommended that you try out at least that episode two, Henry's Anytime Chili for One, which is the thumbnail for his channel. I think you're right. I think that's probably the best entry point. Yeah. Well, we were pretty much on the same page for those. Although I, I did 
give feeders. I thought you were going to outpace me on feeders, but there you go. Yeah, I am trapped a little bit because I wouldn't necessarily call it better than Max Magician. Right. That's really all that's holding me back. Maybe they both deserve it too, but I'm going to stay consistent. There you go. Okay. Better than Robert, better than after last season. Yeah. All right. So I guess then it is time to determine what we're going to watch next, Brian. Sounds about right. Thanks for joining me here on my birthday, Dan. Thank you, listeners. What comes up next week? So, Brian, the time has come for our theme month. We'll be recording next episode. I don't know exactly what day, but it might be in February or it might be just shortly before February. And I think my past two theme months were in or around February. So this will work pretty well. My theme month is going to be train month. Trains, Brian. Do you like trains? There's a lot of train movies out there, Dan. Yeah, more than you think. So, Brian, I'm going to pick a movie that for me is the quintessential all-time great train as a key symbol and narrative device movie. You know it's one I really like. It is Brief Encounter from 1945. It's a British film. It's a romance film. There's a train. And it'll be a kickoff of our train month. We can talk about trains, Brian. I'm ready for this locomotive of train month. And yeah, like I had some advance notice of train month and I stopped my short list when I got to like 15 films. So there's there's so many train movies. It'll be intriguing to learn what we end up hitting and what we don't. I think trains are really cinematic. I, I We'll talk a little bit more about it next week, but yeah. Well, I hope you join us, listeners. I hope you climb aboard the train month. And Absolutely. thank you again for listening here on The Goods. Happy birthday, Brian. Thank you. Thank you.